Welcome to From the Heart with Daniel Groom and Dawn Lister, she, her. From the Heart is a podcast based in Leon-Sea, Essex, United Kingdom. Today we are thrilled to welcome back Jude Mills. I'm a wee bit excited about saying welcome back. I feel like we're a podcast now that we've asked somebody to come back, Daniel. <laughs> like from the minute we started, I'd be like, oh, imagine when we have people back for more in-depth interviews. Feels very adult. <laughs> so welcome back, Jude. You filled a little fantasy of mine. I'm very wow. happy to have you back. Jude is a yoga therapist, teacher, and a teacher trainer. She specializes in yoga for cancer. She is an interfaith, ordained interfaith minister and a hospital chaplain. And she is also author of Adapting Yoga for People Living with Cancer. I've just received the book in the post and I've got some time off this weekend. First time off properly in about nine months, I think. Well, maybe not that long, but certainly since September last year. So I'm super excited to um, turn off my phone, turn off my laptop, Go invisible and read your book. That's my plan. Wonderful. Really looking forward to it. So welcome, welcome. How are you, Daniel? How is life? How has things been going for you this week? I'm okay today, Dawn. Feeling a bit tired. Um, all my pronouns are he, him, by the way. Um, yeah, feeling a bit tired today. I've got re- good reason to be tired. I'm going to mention some things out of my mouth that you've never heard before. But this morning I went to the gym and I had a PT session. <laughs> wow oh my god did you what kind yes. of what kind so of- this is quite a milestone achievement for me yeah. um exercise sports has never been something that i have wanted to partake in particularly due to growing up as a as a queer child um and being horrendously bullied through pe um and being made to feel that I wasn't good enough to be able to exercise um so I've been doing quite a lot of work on myself through lockdown I've been having therapy and out of that came this need to challenge myself in different ways so I'm a like 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 a lot of people who struggle with group exercise I like doing sports alone. So I like running. I like swimming. I like yoga. <laughs> well, that's not an exercise, as we know, but the, the asana part. You know, and I, I find being in, in solitary quite a comfortable place to be. So for me to go into a gym and be amongst masculinity in that way is quite a, it was quite triggering and quite difficult this morning and I was quite anxious before I went in but my husband also has very very um, similar views and experiences to me and he's been working with this really amazing PT who just really gets what we need as queer people Um, and it's just been a joy this morning so I'm feeling fatigued and tired from facing one of my fears. (laughs) Daniel I'm so happy for you yeah it's just even if you do it for a month and go oh that was totally overrated. I'm not doing that again. I'm just so pleased that you have been able to do it and felt empowered enough. So weirdly, going in the gym was harder than going in five degrees sea swimming. <laughs> that for me was harder. <laughs> Being around other people, you know, and just that kind of, I don't know, just that the notion of what, you know, the gym 
represents it represents in my mind yeah yeah so i'm probably feeling a bit fatigued and tired from overthinking it massively as well <laughs> yeah, oh, well i'm i'm really thrilled for you so it's amazing amazing wow so jude how are you how is you well it's been a few weeks since we spoke to you how have you been yeah i've been all right um i my pronouns are she her or they them i'm happy with either um I'm I am doing I'm studying for another uh, master's another master's postgrads qualification in public theology so I've been immersed in writing a very kind of uh, it's not it's not a difficult essay but the, but it's it's hard going just getting all the data that I the the uh, quotable data that I need for it so yeah I've been head down in that and um, if I spend too much time on a screen I get really grumpy. Mm. And um, and so I'm trying to limit my screen time to a certain portion of the day, and uh, and then try and do other things. So, but yeah, nothing much more exciting than that has happened. Uh, that sounds like a lot of work. Right say, it is, it's quite a lot of work. I don't know why I do these things to myself, but. <laughs> do you think? Do you think there is a certain? I, it's curious. I was talking to my friend yesterday. And we are very similar and we've both spent our whole adult life on a course. Yeah. And at the end of every course, we go, oh, literally, we go, I'm not doing that again. And, and then within a fortnight, I've booked on something else. I'm continually yeah. adding to, what do you think that, what do you think that's about? What's yeah. your thoughts? Um, well, I think it's got like, like everything, it's got two or even more sides to it. So there is the, the, like everything it's got shadow side so there's a potential mm -hmm. for um continually learning or or thinking that you need to continually learn or gather qualifications or pieces of paper because there's a sense that you're not good enough mm -hmm. or that you, you need to mm -hmm. be more qualified or whatever it whatever it is the story that you're telling yourself mm -hmm. or or the the flip side of that which is much healthier is uh it's a really good thing for the human spirit soul psyche to to be constantly open to learning new stuff so mm -hmm. uh, like everything it can always slip into to shadow but I think yeah I've been a perpetual student ever since I was an actual student in the, in the, the late 80s um, and I don't think I'll ever stop I don't it, for me it's about keeping my brain busy um, and and also there's something for me about hmm, I think backing up what I believe or think or think that I know with proper study mm. rather than just making it up. Mm. So there's a little bit, a bit kind of legitimacy angle around it for me, which again can slip into shadow, like, you know, take me seriously kind of thing. Mm. And um, so I have to be mindful of that. Mm. Definitely just thinking about the the part of training that I'm really missing because actually being online and training like we've all had to do over the last year or so now um, has definitely had its benefits because I've been able to train with people that I never thought I would be able to train with you know people that are in America and people that are on other continents that would it would have cost me thousands to go and do trainings with them um but i kind of miss f 
for me is that bit of camaraderie after where you actually get to talk with others about what the training was like. And I think if you leave it, you kind of lose that kind of initial excitement from what you've learned. And, you know, those sort of coffee breakout times or those lunch times or, you know, if you're staying up in London or, you know, somewhere to, to have done a study and you've got someone else that you're travelling with and you can talk to them about what the experience was straight after it, that's what I'm really missing, I think. It feels quite, you know... For me, that was always part of the training, actually, was to reconnect with my sort of peer group as well, yes, you know, and those, those people that you maybe don't get to see very much. And actually, a good friend of mine, Lisa Horwell, um, who um, is an amazing teacher um, of yoga and has, has dedicated her yoga study to really working in addiction recovery. Um, mm-hmm. And... Um, Lisa and I used to do the same training together every year and it was like our little thing that we did for about five years and we didn't do it the last two years obviously and we were we were in mourning from not doing it you know it was like oh we got we got to spend a week together and just hang out and just you know for us to it was like lovely yeah we had a little bench that we'd go and sit on in a park you know you know it was very kind of formulaic for the both of us you know (laughs) but yeah it feels yeah yeah, for me, it's much that camaraderie and being around people. Mm. There's, def- there's a definite aspect of that, but there's something also about going to a designated place, isn't there, where you set aside your normal life and you even, as you say, you travel away from home. You might even, you know, stay where you're studying and, it, and it, it, there's a sort of retreat-like aspect to it. So you're, yeah. you're devoting that space and time and energy just to your learning process which I think is really important and when it's in your own home that 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 brings in a dimension which is I think is um it's quite difficult to navigate energetically Mm. you know when your partner's in the next room or or the dog comes in or you know whatever it happens to be Mm. it it you know the, the sort of two worlds kind of collide sometimes yeah I I completely get that and it's really interesting listening to you to talk about it I I've I've quite liked doing the training online um because um I'm very introverted people when they meet me are don't realize that but I find company quite overwhelming it's taken me till I was in my 40s to work out that that was what was what was going on that I whenever I was going out I would need to have a drink if I was going out socially before I went out and it wasn't until I stopped drinking altogether that, I, and I've had to face the fact, oh my God, I used drinking to make me comfortable to be in company and then looked at, well, it's not that I don't like people, it's that what is it about that I don't like and I don't like big groups of people. Yeah. And it's not like, it's, I can't even really say why, I just find it quite draining. It's too much, too much stimulation maybe, too much noise. So um, now I just don't put myself in those situations and, yeah. you know, find places, you know, if I'm, if I've had to spend a lot of time, with a lot of people, you know, give myself that downtime. So I've really enjoyed being able to do my learning online, but there is a, but this week I've started looking for retreat spaces to go to so that I can go and do some practice. Cause I'm really missing stepping out of my life and going into mainly meditation retreats. That's what I would choose to do. So finding, you know, those lovely quiet spaces where we can just go and 
be and be led and be looked after and 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 then also I get to indulge in not speaking to anybody so I do <laughs> you've got a legitimate reason to, to, <laughs> not, to exactly. I get five days of complete not having to talk to a soul and then it's, it's never long enough it's ne- I'd be one of those people if I didn't have a family if I wasn't a householder I'd, I'd, I'd be I'd be going like I'm off on a four-year silent retreat I'm going off to do some deep work <laughs> and it would yeah. suit me per oh do you know what that that's probably going to happen one day because I'll just just warn you now Daniel you might need to prepare the studio for me disappearing for four years but I'll come back even more zen so it'll be all good business might not look quite the same but <laughs> anyway, no, there's part of that monastic uh, experience really appeals to me as well and and I don't enjoy crowds or noise I'm, I'm on the autism spectrum so I it, that makes complete sense to me mm. um, and and there's a lot about um, you know accessing trainings on the in the online space which make it hugely more accessible to people like mm. us like me mm. um, because we don't have to navigate all of that social Mm. stuff and transporting big crowds of people and going places that you're not familiar with and all of the mm. the, the stuff that makes it difficult um, but then this is a dimension of group interaction which is which you know has its own challenges as well so mm. yeah mm. Uh, but yeah courses for courses isn't it everybody's different and that's it that's it it's, and it's beautiful and it's oh, what's lovely is we can just accept it and just say you know that's who you are that's what life has brought you this time i mean i'm a strong believer in karma and reincarnation and so on and that's a whole bigger longer topic but i really believe you know we land where we are and the journey for me is about surrendering and finding our peace in it and uh it's taking me to be 50 to find it <laughs> oh yeah that's what it, i i strongly believe that that's what middle age is for is it oh good yes that there's this there's this kind of unraveling of const you know of all the baggage mm. the constructs that we've gathered the the expectations so that we can really begin to properly investigate who we really are mm. um <clears throat> i don't think i made that up i think it's <laughs> there's, some in, there's some ancient wisdom in there i'm pretty sure but uh but you've embodied it you're embodying it right now <laughs> You brought it into reality in this moment. Yes, that's how it feels. Um, There's something else about, um, because I think we sort of talked about the the last time about um, accessibility, didn't we? And um, inclusion. And what is wonderful about uh, this online space, and you kind of mentioned it, Daniel, is the accessibility of trainings that we wouldn't normally be able to have access to. So I've done some training with Upaya, the Zen Center, in, which is based in New Mexico. And it's on my bucket list to actually go there at some point. But, you know, I've done a couple of trainings with them this year. Uh, and that's just been amazing. But also from a from a, a disability perspective, a lot of people um, with disabilities have been able to access learning spaces that, that were much more difficult for them to access before. And, and, and also they're having a bit of a kind of... Uh, an understandable reaction to it suddenly now now you can offer this but where you weren't able to before you know and um and hopefully that level of accessibility will stay um that's my hope anyway i think what's happened through this lockdown period is 
people have really had to people people that are running trainings or you know holding spaces for other people and charging a fee for doing that they've really had to look at actually you know what is the value of what the person that is purchasing from us getting yes and it's really I've, I've really been so happy to see and it's something we've done at the studio as well which is to put in pricing points yeah. for people because so many people have been financially affected due to lockdown and covid but actually that's just forced something to happen that needed to happen for a long time yeah. whereas you know there's been a lot of emphasis put upon the cost of certain trainings and workshops Mm -hmm. and you know there needs to be a level of financial gain for that person who is holding the workshop because they've spent years studying and you know but having price brackets to make it more accessible for more people it's just for me, it's been such a relief to know actually I can go and do that training and I haven't got to pay the full amount if I haven't got it. You know, uh, that for me has been really, really powerful. And I know other people have been really felt really supported by recognizing actually many of us haven't got the same outgoing and incoming that we did have. And, yeah. and, and, you know, it's, I'm interested to see how that is going to evolve as we move back into studio spaces more, you know, and kind of, you know, people having to pay out for rent and paying out for, whereas, you know, that hasn't been the case (laughs) for a lot of people, you know, and it's uh, it's really intriguing to see how how things are going to evolve and change as we as we kind of progress into this this new phase of, you know, holding space for people oh it's difficult to know isn't it i think all the early indications would suggest that that there's a bit of a scramble to get back to normal um whatever that was um and i'm not sure that all i I, i'll be a bit more affirmative and say i don't really want it to go back to normal because i think there are some there's some huge benefits to the changes that have happened kind of socially and environmentally and you know um you know the way that our economy is structured is exactly what you described daniel which is you know the in order to support the sort of brick and mortar establishments of yoga studios um which have you know really quite high costs when you when you add it all up then 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 that that cost has to be passed on to the the people that are using it and is that the most accessible model um and it's, it's really difficult because a lot of uh, yoga teachers and yoga therapists are very socially minded and yet they still they still need to pay the rent and put food on the table and justify the cost of their trainings. And, you know, what we are is stuck in a, a capitalist model, you know, a, a, an industry which, you know, this this yoga business has become a huge 80 billion dollar industry mm-hmm. um, and which is massively complex to try and kind of um, analyze from all these different perspectives 
they're really difficult to escape. <laughs> it's, it's difficult to, to imagine another way of doing it when this is how it's it's currently done. Mm -hmm. I couldn't I couldn't agree with you more. And I, I, I we we walk this line all the time, don't we, Daniel? And you know, personally and as a studio. And I know many people that do, and it's like we are living within the constraints of a capitalist society. Our practice kind of the more you do it and the more it opens you up and brings you home and opens your heart wants you makes you want to be more inclusive more tolerant more loving more accessible and so and you kind of want to just be able to offer it to everybody you know as you know so that nobody doesn't have that opportunity but we, I think the way we, we try to manage it is to offer that that structure so there's lower cost options to come in there's some free stuff available there's bursaries available that kind of stuff but to do that you then need to charge x so that effectively the money's coming to be able to do it and I would love to see the whole the whole fabric of the way society is run change so that things like this perhaps were supported, you know, things like the arts were supported. Yes. That nourished people were supported and, and you know, given, maybe given some funds or something or discounts or something so that they, they are enabled to help society to be richer and to be more connected because that's what it does. It creates connection and conversation and you know, the more, whatever it is, whether it be yoga, arts, books, anything like that, you know, the, these conversations start and people start to think more creatively. Yes. And so we come out of that sort of just fight, flight, panic, survive mode into, well, what else is possible and who else is out there? And you know, all, all we can do, I guess, all I can do, speaking for myself, is to try to make my life look as much like that as it can within the constraints of our society. Mm. I'm a big advocate of the universal basic income. Oh yeah. And all of the the research that's been done in the places where they've tried it out is that it has, you know, it ha has nothing but positive effects mm -hmm. um, on people's lives, obviously, because it lifts people out of the, the stress of poverty, but also it feeds back into the economy because people have more money to spend and it doesn't make people lazy as some people might imagine that it does, you know, uh, it actually makes it takes the stress away from people so that they feel more able to contribute in the ways that they can and the ways that they're qualified to. So mm. what I've always said that if I had enough money to survive on, I would probably give this work away for free, you know, um, because that, that to me, that feels more uh, sustainable and more ethical, you know, but well, while I have to earn, earn money to, to pay for just to survive, you know, that's, but then I, then I have to charge for what I do. Charge more than I might. Yeah, yeah, you're spot on. It's a, it's a huge, we'll have to have this conversation in another podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yes, let's sort out all the social ills in our country. <laughs> you know? I think a universal income would be a huge step towards sorting out because, I mean, let's just, just very briefly, let's touch on, one of the first things that happens when you calm your nervous system down is that your wisdom steps in because yes. there's space for your intuitive wisdom, universal wisdom to come to come to the forefront. When you're living in fight and flight, there's no room for those creative things to happen. So we are, most of society are on the treadmill going uphill every exactly. single day, slipping back in poverty. 
you're yeah. in constant state of stress. And so many people are important. No amount of yoga is going to change that. Exactly. I mean, it'll help. It'll help a sort of band-aid. So, you know, it helps you to uh, not be in a constant state of panic. But if you don't take the poverty away, it doesn't take away the source of the stress. And that's that's a huge issue. Exactly. Yeah. Well, let's get to our topic. So yeah. we, we were going to speak a little bit today about... So I've written a really long question. I'm going to read it out and then we can unpack okay. it because I don't want to forget anything because it's too important. So I've I've said, or we've said, what is religion versus spirituality? And how do we as seekers and yoga teachers cross the bridge from attending or offering a yoga class that's mainly about body alignment and postures into a practice that could be considered spiritual? And then, of course, I've put in a little caveat saying we can see that all practice can be spiritual, which is absolutely true. And how it is offered in the presence of the teacher, but how do we ensure that the practice is delivered in such a way as to make the space a spiritual element to the practice, have a spiritual element to the practice? Ooh, Go. What a question. <laughs> what is religion versus, versus spirituality? Well, I can give I can give a very sort of basic answer to that. Um, in that religion suggests some organized cultural element to uh, spiritual belief and practice. Um, it suggests that there are rules, doctrines, dogmas, maybe a, a, some books or texts that suggest what people who subscribe to that religion should do and how they should behave. Um, and whilst religion contains aspects of spirituality, spirituality doesn't necessarily need to contain aspects of religion so spiritual spirituality is that which uh the human being recognizes as as a dimension to their experience which goes beyond the physical and the mental so it's not just about the body it's not just about the mind it's it's that which gives shape meaning um purpose um and the ways in which they understand their place in the scheme of things. So for some people, they can have what might be described as supernatural beliefs. I don't particularly like that word, but it's the one that we have. So they might believe in um, uh, a god or gods or a goddess or other beings or deities that somehow have an influence, control or governance over the universe, over the planet, over our existence. Um, and they might believe in other beings, spirits, spirit animals, fairies, uh, angels. That's another one that's quite popular. So there's that element, that sort of supernatural element. And then there's the element which is, is more concerned with the inner experience. So both of these experiences could be described as spiritual, but more, uh, so, but deeper than that, I think that just the act of being conscious mm. and, and in the human experience aware of being conscious is in itself a spiritual experience because with that awareness of consciousness comes inevitably uh, questions of of meaning meaning making meaning making so we attempt to understand our own existence through 
examining ourselves. Um, so yeah, religion contains concepts and aspects of spirituality, but not necessarily the other way around. And a good, I would say a good majority of people nowadays in this country, like the UK, probably fall into that camp. So even if they, they put on their census form that they're Christian or Church of England or whatever it happens to be, um, they are probably not so much religious, but they might adhere to certain spiritual beliefs. Um, so they don't practice the religion, they don't go to church, they don't read the Bible, they don't, you know, and, they, and uh, significantly don't necessarily behave in Christian ways or espouse Christian values, but they, they probably have an idea that there's something beyond their own um, physical and mental reality. That's a really concise and helpful answer. Thank you. <laughs> um, there was more to this question, wasn't there? Oh yeah, so in the yoga, oh, this is where it gets way more complex. So yoga, uh, yoga is an, an immense topic and the yoga that we most encounter in um, in sort of Western yoga practice is, is the, the physical practice of yoga or hatha yoga um, and, and even more kind of um, diluted than that really only one particular aspect of the hatha yoga practice which is asana and so it's become what has been termed as a modern postural yoga so that if you go to any yoga class, you're more likely to be doing asana than anything else. That's what people imagine when they imagine yoga. But yoga is a, is a much vaster multi-dimensional practice than just the, the, the postures, um, as we know. And there are ways to practice yoga which are not about the body at all. Um, however, having said that, I think most people, even if they do go to a modern postural yoga class, have a sense that they're doing something which is also on some dimension spiritual. And I'm not sure if they could necessarily define or quantify or, or put language to what that is. But I think there's certainly an awareness that yoga equals spiritual in the way that other forms of embodied practice are not. And certainly um, some of the scientific evidence points to this as well, which is really interesting. So I'm thinking about some of the the, the studies that I point to in Yoga for Cancer, where they've looked at yoga practice versus just doing stretching exercises, which are a bit like the asanas. Mm. And the outcomes in, in terms of stress reduction in particular, and the impact on quality of life outcomes are much more enhanced in the people who do yoga versus just stretching. Mm. 
So something else is happening in yoga. Um, and I suppose that aspect of it could be intentionality. So if people know they're doing yoga, there's a sense that they're doing something which is for more than just their body. Um, and then, of course, there's a meditation aspect of it as well, which, again, has got some um, proven impacts on the body-mind. I don't know where I'm going with this. Ask me another question. It's such a rich conversation. Goodness, we could just unpick all of it, really. I mean, I, I guess I want to say, firstly, thank you. It's a really helpful clear description because you can get kind of lost in a lot of metaphysical stuff here and it's unnecessary oh, yeah. actually completely unnecessary although maybe fun maybe fun we might go there so um happy to go there that's my that's my shtick let's well, let's <laughs> let's let's go there in a minute so i i'm i'm just thinking let's just start at the beginning a person comes into class people on this podcast who haven't had this experience or have had it and don't understand what it was that was happening mm. and for me, there's something about the way we lead the class in an invitational way yeah. that allows people to come home to their direct experience. Yes. Themselves as inherent beings um, versus being stuck in their mind traps. Yes. And, um, could you speak a little bit about that, for instance? <laughs> <laughs> That's interesting. Um, a partner, Richard, uh, texted me yesterday. He said, can you send me, uh, he wanted, to, uh, I've got a lovely translation of the Yoga Sutra by Mukunda Styles, which has just opened up my, reopened my experience with the Yoga Sutra in a way that I had been closed by my teacher, both teacher trainings that I did. Um, and uh, so there's that second verse, isn't there, in the Yoga Sutra? Yoga is the, 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 the taming of the vacillations of the mind stuff, or whatever translation that you, uh, that you read. Essentially, what yoga is, is that quietening of what's going on in the mind in order to meet what you've just described on, which is the essential self. So that which is beyond thought wave that which is beyond all the chatter all the the stuff that we that clouds our awareness but then that sort of begs the question what is this yeah. what is this self right <laughs> and i think all of the oh well not all necessarily but a lot of the major spiritual traditions are actually pointing towards this same reality which is that there is a self with a big S, which is beyond the self with a little S, and that the self with the little S is what identifies with all that stuff that's going on, on, on in the mind, all of the baggage that we accumulate in our human experience. Mm -hmm. And that the big S is that which identifies with the, the, the universal reality, or in some traditions, God, in the Hindu tradition, they would describe it as Brahman, universal consciousness or reality, of which Atman, this individual, big S self, is a part, and that there's no separation. 
and and so yoga essentially this union that we're supposed to be aiming for through yoga is is not um anything necessarily that we do but that which we not just become but remember that we are um, and I think that that's a, a sort of common uh, Western misinterpretation that the, that there's a sense that we're going somewhere mm. or achieving something. That's that's a very Western way of of going at things, isn't it? I'm going to achieve this. I'm going to do yoga at myself. Mm. I'm going to make yoga happen. When in fact, it's it's actually what we already were. And that the, the practices are about kind of peeling off the layers of baggage to remember it. Mm. Um, whilst staying very present and grounded in the body. Um, and it's it can and is it can be and it is a very powerful practice from that perspective, but it can also be like everything. It can be misused and it has its shadow side. The, um, the way I the way I see a practice happening is that whether you be reaching to hold your foot or attending to your breath mm. or repeating a chant or just sitting observing, any and all of those actions are entry points to the self. Yeah. And so in a class situation, Hopefully, throughout the class, those moments are being offered in a way that is invitational and directing the student to have that experience, whatever that experience, however that experience shows up for them. Because here's, here's the big kicker, isn't it? In the trying, we create more, um, we create more separation. Yeah, I mean, that's it. That's yes, there's definitely one way of looking at it. I think I love the fact that you're talking about using this invitational language. Um, and there was certainly a, a, I think we spoke about this in the, in the, the, the last podcast that uh, certainly the way that I was trained in yoga 20 years ago was, was very much an, a sort of instructional, you know, that you told people what to do and they did it. It's a bit like Simon says. And I think we've learned, uh, hopefully, that, that that is not necessarily a good way to um, encourage um, embodied awareness. And it's not very trauma sensitive <laughs> and it's not very inclusive. So um, hopefully people are now moving towards this idea that you that everything's an invitation mm -hmm. and it's an invitation to explore possibility. It's an invitation to explore sensation. Um, and inner awareness, um, but also it's an invitation to explore what not to do as well. I think, it, again, the, the, the way in which our, our culture, the West, as it's sometimes summarized, has taken hold of yoga and a lot of these um, other Eastern, Eastern esoteric practices is to uh, apply a kind of Western mindset, which is of, of achieving you know, you see yoga challenges, which, <laughs> for example, uh, which is, 
almost it, to me it's kind of the opposite of yoga but that's how that's how people relate to uh, physical activity in our culture um and since yoga is synonymous with with exercise then then we kind of relate to it in that way i've lost my thread but i'll keep going <laughs> why you're explaining it um and so yes that's what i was aiming for was is this idea of okay why are we doing this why are we here what is this that what are are this this strange sequence of shapes that we're attempting to do with our bodies why do i want to bend over and you know make the shape of an upside down v or a dog whatever we want to call it uh why is it important that you know i'm able to sit with my legs crossed etc 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 and is it is it important that I can do these things? What is it that we're attempting to say and do through this expression of the body um, that is important? Mm. And then when we achieve that, and what? what has happened? Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Well, you know, if you can stand on your head, <laughs> how does that benefit you? <laughs> I remember when I did my first teacher training in India and part of the sequence of postures that we were learning to teach was a headstand. And I couldn't do a headstand. And um, I, remember I was in tears at one point, just really worried that I would, uh, that I would be failed that I would fail the course because I couldn't I couldn't stand on my head until one of the tutors took me aside and said why do you think you're going to fail if you can't do your do a headstand and gave me a you know just helped me to realize that that wasn't the point of what we were doing you know as it turns out when I let go of the anxiety of it and let go of the pressure of having to do one then I, then Somehow my body took me up into a headstand quite happily, you know. Um, but I certainly don't do them now, unless I really feel like it. If I think, oh, I want to stand on my head, I'll do a headstand. But it's not something that, that I feel needs to be a regular part of my practice. And I certainly don't teach it. It's I don't know what you guys think about this, but I've, I, I've noticed um, the longer I've been practicing, the less I do. Yeah. So I, I I certainly went through a phase early on in my twenties where the practice was very physical to the point where I would say it was cruel. I look yes. back, although I had incredibly busy full classes around the old yoga circuit in London, and was deeply ego-led. And if anyone who knows me is listening, I'm really sorry, and I hope that that taught you how not to do it. Actually, because it was just evil. It's just. Like how many sun salutations how many variations and oh okay you can have five minutes lying down at the end and i mean but it kind of felt almost like a rite of passage like i had to go through that to unlearn it in some ways mm. and and then as i've gone older and older and now proper middle age um 
everything is just everything is just an opportunity I mean with this conversation you know walking to work having your dinner getting in the shower having a conversation everything is yoga you know all right we come into a room we sit with our students we have a class we offer practices but in the end ultimately there is nothing that isn't a yoga there is nothing that isn't an invitation home to our true self and so for me, putting too much stuff in the class, having too much up and down. So there isn't time to notice and sense and be in your body and be in your breath and notice how you're reacting. Then we, you know, it's not, it's not, our, it's not doing anything for you. If anything, it's adding more difficulty and more complexity to you and more, and more layers of heaviness and more thought stuff that's going to get in the way of your direct experience. That's anxiety about not being able to do something. Yeah. Um, what I do now, and I have done for several years now, is that as I talk to people at the beginning of a class, there's a re revolutionary idea. <laughs> say, how are you? And then, and then I say, what, what does your body need? And if people are not able to put it in words, they'll certainly show you through their body because they'll do something with their shoulders or, you know. And so I get a sense then for, for what... I should be including this class, which is actually going to serve people physically from an asana perspective. Mm -hmm. yeah. And so last night, my class, you know, only three people showed up. That's fine. Um, and, you know, they, every single one of them said, I just want to lie down. <laughs> but I'm also a bit stiff because I've been, you know, going, I've been walking or whatever. And so we did a very lie down class with some stretches for the spine and the low back and the hips and pretty much not much else you know and and so it was it was directed at what people told me they needed rather than me just doing doing yoga at people it seems much more of service to me but um and i think it's worth also saying that you know we're speaking about you know journeying back to self this this you know this place where we ex when we experience that we aren't our thoughts that we aren't our breath mm. aren't our body that there's more that there's a weakness of all those things and and i would i'd go so far as to say that you know you, you could say so much about how, that how wondrous that experience is that feeling of connectedness and expansiveness and how you know really in that space love is the only thing that truly exists is this deep sense mm -hmm. you know there's no fear no sadness no judgment and it can be very easy to kind of, especially if one has had a glimpse of that experience or an understanding of it, to kind of be, oh, well, let's hang out there all the time. But actually, <laughs> we are in the human form. We're in on the planet, living with other people who maybe haven't had those experiences, aren't interested in, you know, going through their own suffering. We are encountering those. We are in a human body, having we've maybe got families and friends and responsibilities. So there's, it feels to me like there's quite a fine line between, you know, striving, and certainly we shouldn't be striving, but, you know, looking at our practice as a way to come home, but also to then, from that place of understanding and experience, to then use that as a way to enhance our life. What, what would you say about that? Ooh. There are sort of multiple ways in which this could go from a kind of spirit spiritual religious and philosophical perspective you know because i had so many so many thoughts when you said that but 
there's something, and you put it in your notes to me as well, there's something, uh, you mentioned this word transcendent, mm -hmm. and I think there's a, there's a sense to which these practices have been taken on board, but again, by Western audiences, uh, in the pursuit of transcendence, that is somehow bypassing the physical experience. Mm -hmm. um, and I am not, in fact, I am pretty certain that that's not what these practices are intended to do. Because there's a, there's a, there's a big but quite subtle difference between transcendence and avoiding the reality of our physical experience mm -hmm. and coming into full awareness of who we really are, but still being firmly grounded in our physical experience. Mm. which is to me what the purpose of yoga or any spiritual practice should be mm. ultimately if our spiritual practice is not doesn't lead us back to um, a sort of compassionate action in the world mm. then there's something wrong is going on mm. so it's, it's either you're, the, the practice isn't doing what it's supposed to do or it isn't what you think it is does that make sense yeah perfect um and i think all spiritualities have that as a at that at the the root of their philosophy is it's rooted in this physical reality that we are in whatever you whatever your spiritual um idea of what that is um and there are there are very many variations on what that is. Some people think we're spiritual beings having a physical experience. Some people think our spiritual experience is only as a direct result of having a brain. Um, and there are lots of ways that we can come at it. Either way, here we are, right? This is our this is our physical reality. And to attempt to sort of transcend that or bypass it is actually not taking responsibility for yourself or for the community in which you live. Um, and neither of those things are particularly spiritual, in my opinion. Yeah, I, would agree. <laughs> I would agree. I think that the Buddha was very wise and that he, he, he spoke about, you know, and I'm not, I'm not doing direct referencing because as anyone who knows me knows, I can't remember anything, only just general context. Um, he spoke about, you know, our practices as being causing us to have an end to suffering, but not an end to pain. So, you know, all of these practices and, you know, having an embodied experience of self doesn't mean that we will no longer experience pain. And I think if it does, then there, if you're not experiencing pain or compassion, you're seeing somebody else in suffering and pull at your heart and want to make them feel better or support them or whatever, then, you know, maybe, maybe, maybe there's something quite right happening there. Maybe some deep avoidance going on and something, something else is not for me to, not for me to judge or know. But the, the practices themselves embody uh, em enable us to live an embodied experience of compassion so that we can have deep love and good wishes for other beings and, and try to live our life in a way that leaves a trail of compassion behind us and around us, I would think. Absolutely. Um, if you bring in the, the Christian example of that, so in the, the sort of uh, life and ministry and death and resurrection of Jesus, 
that that whole story is about the divine God having a fully human embodied experience as an absolute necessity. And so that fully human embodied experience is not is not uh, secondary or um, undesirable or to be transcended. It, this is a necessary experience um, in order to fully realize our our own that that, that own our own spark of divinity. Mm. Spot on. I, I so concur. I was just. The way that I was thinking about my experiences, particularly within my meditation practice, and I was talking to um, someone about this yesterday, and it, I've, uh, in my in my in my personal practice, I've started to kind of really find I'm getting to the root cause of my suffering yeah. and it's this feeling of being lonely or disconnected mm -hmm. feeling separated mm -hmm. and I think from my experience that place of pain and separation is an easier place to be in than mm -hmm. being in a place of joy or contentment because it's been there the whole of my waking or knowing life you know um from being a child growing up um that was queer you know and the experience of that all the way through to right now you know what i talked about at the start of the podcast about you know feeling fear around other people and that actually being about feeling separated from people yeah. and what i started to realize for me is if i allow myself to just recognize when i'm feeling that fear that loneliness and I now know through the tools of my yoga practice and this connection to my spiritual understanding is that I now have a choice about I can sit with that pain or the discomfort or I can allow myself to fill it with light or joy or whatever it is that I'm choosing to kind of fill that empty vessel within myself. And to me, that is how, you know, that's spirituality to me. That's my, you know, that's my understanding of I now I know I have a choice. <laughs> I don't know where that energy comes from. I don't know what, you know, I don't know what it is that I'm pulling on <laughs> to draw that in. But it feels like now I've kind of got this, this opportunity to change. And it's, it's, but it's come out of a, of a, a long practice. Right? Oh yeah, 20, 20 odd years, yeah. And, and I think we also, there's a lot in this. <laughs> there's so much in this, it's so juicy. Um, because there's an extent to which that experience, which is hugely valid and real, right? Um, because this is what our spiritual practice is about, right? It's about finding... In, that peeling off of the onion layers of yeah. and finding what the true spark, however you choose to describe it, is, and and this sense of 
not being separate from the, the, the full reality, despite the ways in which the baggage of our culture and our individual and collective trauma has some uh, has created that sense of separation. But there is an extent to which the sort of uh, modern spiritualities, let's call them that, which include yoga and the practitioners and teachers of yoga have weaponized that idea against people who are marginalized, traumatized, um, in such a way that it becomes very victim blaming. So that this idea that yes, you have a choice over your own experience is true to an extent that um, that your practice has allowed it to become. But along with that is a greater societal understanding and acceptance of queer people, right? Mm. Um, whereas 20, 30 years ago, that was most definitely not the case. And so there's, that process has come come with it. So in, in, in to some degree, you, you can feel safer. Mm. Um, and so it's a bit of both, but I'm, I am conscious that yes, this, this is, you know, a, like a, a proper spiritual practice should lead us to these places. But being very mindful of not imposing that injunction on other people who are not there yet, mm -hmm. uh, because it kind of denies their reality to an extent. I, th I think that's a really helpful clarification. So thank you for making that clarification. And I think it's even to go so far as to say that anything should do anything. We are just where we are, aren't we? Yeah. Um, it's, it's, you know, I, I, I don't often talk about the deeper practices that I maybe engage in or the experiences that I maybe have had because and it, might, it was my first teacher that taught me this. He said, don't tell people about your stuff. It's not their business. And it's, it's not, not about you. Business. It's never about you. He would never, I never saw him do a posture. In, his, in all of the years, I never saw him do a posture. And he said, you know, just let, let them find their way when they're ready. And I would go to him, you know, full of fired up with, this person said this and this person did that. And I know it's this. And he'd be, just leave them alone and do your work. And I think that's the thing, isn't it? It's like, leave people alone but offer offer you you know that a yoga nidra a gentle mindful flowing class a meditation practice they're going to be doorways potentially for them to come home to this incredible beautiful inner experience of connectedness with themselves you know to come to touch that place just that even if it just isn't a breath and it doesn't have to be in the yoga room it could be in prayer in church I've you know I, I've been in churches and prayed and those experiences are no different than sitting on a meditation stool or being in the forest under a tree you touch a place and it might just be for a second but you've mm. touched it and then sometimes those moments open up into this vast sense of there is no I there's just everything there's the universe there's the stars and boundlessness there's timelessness and, and a witnessing of, well, there's this thing over here that is playing out as dawn, but actually there's, that is just a projection. 
And there's so much more than that. But I wouldn't talk about that in a class or to a client. It's not relevant. The only thing that's relevant is that we are offering them a safe place to meet themselves where they are today, which is what you're saying, Daniel, isn't it? In your practice, you are now, because of your years of dedicated practice and where, and where you've arrived right now and the work you're doing on yourself, that you're able to meet yourself where you are. And there's an acceptance. And when there's an acceptance, and I would go so far as to say, and correct me if you disagree, because I'm not necessarily right, is that rather than something coming in for you, it's you're coming home to yourself. You're experiencing what's already there and present because no one can give it to you because it's not gone anywhere. It was never disappeared in the first place. It's just there was maybe shame or anger or fear. I don't I have no idea what's there for other people, but that was in the way. And when we re recognize that for what it is, which is what you were saying you were recognizing, what happened was, ah, oh, and there I am. Yeah. Yeah. I think, um, well, uh, the, the reason that that has been allowed to happen is, yes, because of a long practice, but also fundamentally because of lockdown. Because mm. I've had more time to be able to dedicate to really taking care of myself in the ways that I needed to. So for me... It's been a huge positive to come out of this situation is actually it's given me time to really, really hone in on those practices that I've been working with for a long time. Wonderful. And I think that is that is, you know, that something Dawn touched upon was I think, you know, when we are put in this position of teacher, therapist, you know person that's in charge for those few moments <laughs> um, it can be it can be very difficult to disconnect from your personal experience and to create a space where people can have their own experience absolutely and I think as teachers and especially teachers that now are being asked to be more adaptive because of the way that yoga is being taught and changed being taught to actually allow yoga to become more accessible it falls on us as individuals to make sure that we have those spiritual practices where we don't feel uncomfortable holding that space for those people and not directing them into what we think should or shouldn't be happening, that we allow that space to just be. Absolutely. And that's that's kind of sort of where I was heading, so thank you for that. <laughs> Daniel is... Um, oh, where to start? So there's a... There's a, a phenomenon which is... is um, Kind of largely down to the, the the growth of social media of the the influencer and so what we're what we're seeing quite a lot of are people with with actually quite a, a young um undeveloped practice having a lot of followers and a lot of influence and um 
and what they they are often mistaking is their own kind of early spiritual transcendent type experiences for the truth um and and so they start uh, uh, kind of expound you know like expounding on that experience as if it is the truth and if it's as if it's everybody else's truth right and there can be a kind of a smaller more contained version of that in the yoga room where you have young inexperienced teachers some of whom haven't had a very long yoga practice suddenly having this power because then it is power we can't there's no two ways about it. it is a power like every power it can be used for good and it has its absolute shadow side um so what happens when you're in a yoga space with people you are essentially in a space where you can be manipulative of those people's physical um mental and emotional experience because the practices of yoga are very powerful particularly practices like meditation pranayama yoga nidra where you're effectively influencing what's going on physiologically mentally and emotionally and in, in, inside of a person who who may or may not be vulnerable so if you think about that power i actually really worry about my 35 year old self teaching yoga classes in the past thinking bloody hell what like I d i'm not sure i even knew what i was doing because my, my own practice has evolved to such an extent that I'm not saying I know necessarily what I'm doing now, but my own personal practice has evolved. My teaching practice has certainly evolved and the amount of awareness I have of all of these different strands of inclusion and trauma awareness and, and just the physiology, anatomy and physiology and all of it has you know, expanded a thousand fold. And, and so part of me, I mean, this is a bit draconian and I'm not sure I actually believe it, but part of me thinks maybe we should people should wait until they're 50 to teach yoga because like what do you know before then <laughs> no i agree i've been thinking jude i've been thinking i just think i think and i think in some in the correct me if i'm wrong but i think in the past people weren't allowed to teach for a long long time in some of the you know in, you see it in other lineage practices martial arts for example some martial arts um and and in some of the and yoga it used to be that you would go and live with your guru for 12 years and then maybe he would say you know you can go and teach this but not necessarily and other indian practices i'm thinking about indian musicians you know people who play the the indian instruments like sitar they will study for a long 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 time before they get released to actually perform and um, so, but certainly with yoga and the kinds of practices where we are involved in a in a practice which has a dimension, an esoteric dimension, which really needs to be understood through the personal practice. Mm -hmm. That without a long-term practice, I'm not sure that anybody is really equipped to do it properly. And I'm sure I'll have my detractors and my <laughs> arguments, and that's fine, you know, because I was teaching before I, you know, with hindsight, I can see that I was teaching at a time where I maybe wasn't ready to hold that space, but I did it. You know? 
I, think I agree. I mean, I started teaching when I was 23 and um, I had a four year practice by then. Yeah. Uh, it was it was OK. You know, it wasn't it wasn't yoga, but it was fine up to a point. But now looking back from a place of a bit more wisdom and lots of more gray hair, um, I look back and I kind of want to pull, put my head under the blanket with embarrassment. Oh, my God. <laughs> what, was I, what, was I, what was I doing? Oh, man, I didn't even know what all meant properly. Just ridiculous. And it was such a... But then I guess every teacher you meet, even if it's somebody who's 50, if they haven't embodied the practice, you they, the practice will be led from wherever they're residing. So if they're residing in a very egoic state where there's a lot of wanting to receive something back for the class, and I'm not talking about funds, I'm talking about, you know, their ego needing to be fed. That's how they validate their sense of self by being a yoga teacher or whatever it is they're doing. Then, you know, that's what's what what's going to happen. You know, it's to me, ideally, you want to be meeting a teacher who has a stronger practice than that, who has worked through some of those layers or even perhaps is aware that there are more layers and not just in a metaphorical way they actually have had that experience oh, yes of course through that stuff and of course it's not about age it's not really about age I was you know that was a, a, a sort of joking way of putting it but don't it's about practice it's about te teaching what you practice essentially yeah exactly but being aware that this practice can potentially open doors for people that you may not feel equipped to to hold and I think you know from a from a, a, a supervisory perspective I think that's something that our industry really needs to look at oh, is God. you know there's there there is a lot of you know practices being offered in situations where people are having quite significant experiences and then maybe the teacher isn't getting supervision or they haven't got a peer to go and talk to or maybe you know themselves are going through similar experiences or you know their their practices is is because what isn't happening for a lot of people is they're not staying with the teacher for a long period of time. So you don't build that relationship with that teacher. You don't have that peer support and supervision. So then there's lots and lots of people teaching these practices that are very, very highly effective, but also stir a lot of emotional response mm -hmm. <laughs> and visceral response within mm -hmm. people. And that really worries me. I mean, I've, I've, you know, I, I've chosen um, to have supervision for the last sort of six or seven years, and it's been wonderful to have that, you know. Um, and weirdly, actually, now I also have counselling once a week where I talk about the more brain stuff and actually, you know, with the yoga supervision, we talk about more of the, the yoga <laughs> yeah. in its essence. So actually that worked really well for me, but you know, that's a, that's a choice that I made because I felt like I was carrying a lot of stuff from other people and it was triggering things in me yeah. and I needed to talk about it. And it wasn't fair to dump it all on my husband, you know, while we were having dinner. You know? <laughs> no. Um, 
and well as I you know as a because I'm a, a hospital chaplain but also in order to be on a kind of register of interfaith ministers I'm required to have regular supervision it's part of our code of ethics um, and and other professions are the same so if you if you want to be a counsellor or a psychotherapist and be on a register you need to have regular supervision um, if you want to be a healthcare practitioner you need to have regular supervision it's it's part of, it's part of the deal right? mm -hmm. to main, be maintained on a register and uh, we don't we don't have those structures in in yoga um, well, you know, we've got other if you're a member a member of an of a membership body then you might adhere to a code or at least sign up to a code of ethics whether you adhere to them or not but supervision generally has not been part of that structure um I, i'm not sure if a lot of yoga teachers would even know what it was mm -hmm. unless they come from a background like psychotherapy or social work where where it already exists so yeah i think it would be very healthy for yoga teachers to to have that kind of mechanism your work as um, a hospital chaplain, I'm just, I feel like this could be another podcast, so I'm going to ask the question. <laughs> I'm going to ask the question. Well, first of all, what is it you do there? How, how does that, I mean, that obviously is an element of, you know, looking after people's spiritual needs, I imagine. How does, yeah. that, how does that work? Um, so hospital chaplains, um, the name has kind of changed in some trusts. Um, so chaplains are variously known as pastoral and spiritual care, pastoral and spiritual support, um, or just plain chaplains. But essentially, we look after the religious, um, spiritual and emotional care needs of patients and their families and staff. So the understanding is from a healthcare perspective, and this is kind of universally understood now, that the patient experiences more than just the medical care that they receive, that, that that there's a spiritual dimension to health and that it's important to provide that as part of their healthcare experience. And part of that should be should be provided by the staff who look after them, the medical care. Um, but some hospitals, most hospitals will also have staff who are, who are dedicated to just doing that. Um, and to some extent, it will be looking after people's religious needs while they're in hospitals. So if they have a faith, they might want to speak to a chaplain about their faith and what their experience of illness and being hospitalized means in that context and sometimes the ways in which it has been challenged. And we might often meet um, ritual uh, needs at the end of life, which is a big part of what I do. So I'll often go and see people who are in the process of dying. And if they have a particular religious faith, I might say the appropriate prayers with them or I'll arrange for somebody from their faith group to come and do that with them if I if I can't meet it. Um, and and then there are the people who are spiritual but not religious that we've already spoken about, which are are probably the majority nowadays. And often that will just be to have a conversation um, about that dimension of being ill, of being in hospital, 
of the, the worries and concerns that that brings up that, that aren't met necessarily by medical care. Um, so the understanding that every everybody's experience has a spiritual dimension and that sometimes it's important to be able to speak about that to someone who is a, a trained but neutral listener who can hold it with compassion. Um, and often that's around life-threatening illness or um, approaching end of life. That's, as I said, that's the majority of what I do, um, particularly over the last year because of COVID. So it has been a particularly challenging year in that respect for all of us, I think. Okay. I was just, and again, this might be something you want to save for another time, but I've similarly um, worked in the past five years or so with people at end of life in session. So they come for a session at the clinic or I go to their home and then through hospice to end care. And it's a very profound and uh, I feel honoured to have that time with those people. And it's been interesting. I mean, everybody's different, but I feel like at that place, there's a certain something that shifts for people as they come to an awareness that this physical existence that they're having now is, they can feel it ebbing away. There's a certain shift that's happening for them. And um, an embracing almost of the next step. And it's it's been very, very, very interesting. It's something I'm interested in exploring more. Um, I just wonder, what, what, what would you say about that? Is that something you've noticed in yes. your work? It's, it's not something that I could quantify. Mm-hmm. Um, and also it depends. It really depends. Some people have had a long time to get used to the, well, we've all had a long time to get used to the fact that we're dying, whether we deal with that or not is another thing. But I mean, in that that actual dying phase, so some people um, it, it go through a gradual process of accepting that mm-hmm. they're coming towards that, those final days and moments. Mm-hmm. Um, and when they when they get there, they feel in a state of readiness. Mm-hmm. Where that's different is where it seems to, or it, it, the experience of it has happened very rapidly and quickly, and often people can get into a state of of fear, panic, um, and and that process of of shifting into serenity isn't quite as tangible, but it does happen. Mm-hmm. It does happen. Um, and I don't know what the mechanism is. I just, I just know that it does. It's so interesting. I, I mean, I've so many questions about it, so probably not for today. But my, 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 um, my, my I was just thinking as well in Buddhism. I was practicing Buddhist for many, many years, and the one of our main contemplations is contemplation on, on death. It's the preparation for that moment. And 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 I remember at the beginning of starting, I hated it. I thought it was so dark. And why would you put yourself in that place? And actually, in the end, what comes is this deep appreciation and love of life. Beautiful practice. Yeah. yeah I would really recommend it if, for our listeners. If it's not something you've done, you know, under 
obviously find the right teacher and make sure you're in the right place to do it. Don't just pick it up and do it off the internet, please. Um, but it's a, it is a beautiful, beautiful practice to, to partake, partake in. Highly recommend on that note, Joan Halifax's book, Being With Dying. Mm. One of the books that I use as a, a textbook on, the, on my Yoga for Cancer course. Joan Halifax, um, I'll put it in the notes. Joan Halifax. Joan Halifax. So she's um, she actually runs Yopaya Zen Center. And, um, wonderful, wonderful book. It's taught me a lot. Maybe we can get one to talk. And it, I've, it, I've, I've read that book as well. Yeah, and it leads yeah. you through all of these practices in a in a kind of beautifully sort of gradual way. Um, lovely, lovely book. That's wonderful. Thanks for that. Listen, I'm mindful of our time. We could be yes. We could be going on forever, but we can't. Because whilst hello, time. Now we need to do a part three, Dawn. <laughs> maybe we and four and five. And <laughs> maybe we could have Joan Halifax on too. We can all talk about it. Oh, I don't know. I asked her to review my book, and um, I got a lovely message back from one of her staff saying, "Roshi is." Is too busy with her, her teaching commitments, but she wishes you well. You know, it was a nice message, but I knew I was, I knew it was chancing it, put it that way. But, uh. <laughs> I, I have a theory that we just, I just drop messages to everybody constantly. I'm just, don't I'm ask, you don't get, Don. Exactly. Very true. Very true. <laughs> <laughs> so, thank you so much for joining us. It's been, oh, you're so welcome. I'm going to pass back to Daniel to round things up. Yes. Thank you so much, Jude. I was just, as you were just speaking about um, the work that you do in the hospital, I was just thinking that must be such a support for families and such a such a lovely thing to to have someone know that knowing that they're being held by somebody as well, you know, from a from a non-medical perspective, because actually, you know, the medicine can become quite or the the, the the doctors and the nurses have got a role to perform, haven't they? You know, and it's it's their job to to stay on top of that. Whereas for you just to be there and be with them must be such a such a relief for them. So, yeah. And also, I have the time, which is really significant. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. yeah. That you, you, they are your focus, and that person exactly. that is that is passing. So, yeah. What 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 an amazing thing to be able to do, Jude. Mm, Thank you for sharing great. that with us. Thank you. So um, Jude's book, which is out very shortly, which is, you have to remind me of the title, Jude, sorry. Adapting Yoga for People Living with Cancer. Brilliant. So <laughs> that's, that's what it says on the tin. So Jude's book that is out, we've actually got a discount code for it. So if you go to the Sing In Dragon website, which is singindragon.com, um, the discount code is from the heart. 20 and it will give you a 20% discount I think on um, purchasing Jude's book so please do go ahead and use that discount code um, it's been an absolute pleasure to, to converse with Jude today and thank you Dawn as well for sharing your experiences and for being here um, next time we are actually chatting to Lisa who I mentioned earlier Lisa Horwell she's coming in to have a conversation with us um, she's a good friend of Dawn and mine so it'd um, be nice to catch up with Lisa 
and we're we'll be talking about her work that she does around yoga for addiction recovery um, and the amazing work that she's doing locally in Essex with with many recovery centres in and around the South End area. So really looking forward to chatting to Lisa about that. Um, please do track us down on um, Apple Podcast app, on Spotify, on Podbean and anywhere else where you can get podcasts. I think we're everywhere now. <laughs> so please do leave us a review, share with your friends. If there's anything you want to let us know about today's podcast, then please do get in touch. And if there's anything or anyone you want us to interview or converse with, then please do let us know. So until next time, thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Jude. Thank you, Dawn. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Bye now.